Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Crime Hour. Today, I take you all the way to London, and we are talking about Dennis Nilsson. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born on November 23rd, 1945 in Fraserborough, Scotland. According to his mother, he was a very quiet boy. Later, his parents ended up divorcing, and he ended up moving to Strickton, a nearby village from Fraserborough. His father was really absent in his life, so he grew up with his mother and his siblings and grandparents. And growing up, Dennis was very isolated. Um, he would find comfort in people who are not real. So like people in storybooks, like the three little boy bears, like he would find comfort in Goldilocks. He would find comfort in like, uh, you know, all of these like fairy tales. And he would find so much comfort in them that he would actually cut out the pictures of said character and bring it home with him. And the reason why he did that was because he found that he was able to control them because they couldn't say anything back to him. They couldn't argue back. They couldn't like say no to whatever he wanted them to do. So already we see a big sign, which is isolation. And the fact that he's into things that are not real kind of takes me back to the case about that Russian mummy case that I um, talked about where he found comfort in those dolls that he made. His mother also mentions that she would cuddle with her other children and comfort them but she would never cuddle with Dennis because to her she saw him as very repulsive because he lacked social skills he was just very awkward as a child so she was like he's really repulsive I would never like spend the time with him and cuddle him which is really sad because at the end of the day that's still your child and I'm sure your child feels very that's probably why he felt so isolated right because his mother's showing all the love to his siblings, whereas he's just there, kind of thing, like, uh, hello, what about me? So Dennis became very close to his grandfather, who was a fisherman. His grandfather would take Dennis on walks, down to the beach, and just have conversations and spend like a lot of time with him. And so really, his grandfather became like his best friend, the one person who really gets him. But in 1951, his grandfather passed away. And this shook Dennis's life. Like, he did not know how to uh, find comfort in that. He didn't know what to do because the rest of his family didn't bother with him. And his mom found him very repulsive. So it was like the one person in his life is now gone. So he didn't know what to do. So he turned to dead people. So again, there's another red flag, you know, besides the isolation and the fake people, um, like the fake characters, the fascination with death. That's a very big flag. It's in September of 1961, Dennis was 15 years old and he enrolled himself into the army. At the time, he was a cook and learned to butcher and dismember the carcasses of animals. 
While serving in the army, he started to show signs of disturbing behavioral traits. He gets interested in photography, which is very normal. A lot of people are interested in photography, and it's actually really cool and such when you really take the time to like understand it. But he would ask soldiers in the army to pretend that they were dead, and he would just photograph them like that. And he found a lot of like enjoyment out of that, like not the photography part. He found a lot of enjoyment at the them pretending they were dead. By December of 1972, at the age of 27, Dennis had left the army and moved to London. He enrolled with the Metropolitan Police as a constable for a year. Then he joined the civil service. Dennis starts to deal with his sexual sexuality, like opening up to his interests and stuff. So he comes out as gay, and although it was legal at the time, it was still very.、Um, Things were just very different. Like it was legal, he was able to go to gay bars, you know those things existed, and nobody would have judged him, except Dennis because of his lack of social skills, he couldn't hold a relationship. Um, so everything was just a one night stand, and he wanted more. November nineteen seventy five, Dennis manages to settle down and move in with his partner named David Gallican, but it only lasted eighteen months because Dennis was a narcissist, so it was very hard for him to accept the fact that he would not be getting all the attention. Like he would have to show affe- affection to somebody else, and that was hard for him. So after eighteen months, you know, David was like, "Fuck this shit." I'm out, right? So then he left Dennis, and now Dennis was now lonely and desperate for attention and affection because he was a narcissist. He just wanted it all to be himself. Everything around him had to be just about him, because that's what he craved as a kid. And honestly, if you're a narcissist, uh. You better start changing the way you view your life and others because、um, it's very hard to be around people who are a narcissist because it's like they only want it to be about themselves, but so they're not considering other people's feelings. So,、um, yeah, it's very hard, and if you feel like You're one of these people.、Um, here is your chance to change, okay?、Um, don't be a narcissist. December twenty ninth, nineteen seventy eight. Dennis meets a fourteen year old boy named Stephen Holmes. Dennis offers to buy him drinks, then takes the boy back to his place. Unfortunately, Stephen was never seen again because to stop him from leaving, like how David did. Dennis ends up murdering Stephen by strangling him with a with a tie before drowning him in a bucket of water, and this became the regular routine for Dennis. He would go to gay bars, find attractive men or anybody who wants to have a relationship with,、uh, and the victims that he saw were people who wanted comfort, people who needed him, you know, like 
it was people who he thought were like they can't live without me because I'm gonna be the center of their world so I'm gonna just pick that person up so he would offer them a meal or a drink and then bring them back to his place and because he lacked all those social skills that he should have gotten as a kid um and the only way he can keep up with this person or keep this person around to make sure that they never leave him was by killing them. So a lot of his, his victims actually died the same way Stefan did. He would offer them a drink, which he had spiked at his house, and he would have a tie nearby. So when the victim was actually close to passing out from the strangulation, um, uh, he would just drown them in either the bath or with a bucket of water after this he would get himself drunk light a cigarette and spend the next few hours watching this body just watching the body he would even go as far as watching tv with this body bringing it to the bath undressing it washing the body drying it off redressing the body putting the body on a chair and having conversations with this body as if the person was still there. So again, like the Russian mummy case. And although these men, although these men were reported missing, the police didn't take it seriously because they were gay men. And back then, gay men or people who were gay in general didn't get the same respect as a normal civilian. So if you were gay and you were missing or something happened to you and you reported to the police or somebody you know reported that you were missing, the police wouldn't have taken it as seriously and they just kind of brush it off because they're like, whatever, kind of thing. Whereas if you were a regular civilian, they'll be like right on top of that, which is really sad. And I'm really glad that nowadays, like, it's not like that because everybody deserves to be treated equally okay and i'm not saying it just because it's pride month i'm saying it because it's the truth equality people like if you want to treat it with respect then you got to treat people with respect so throughout all this just like john wayne gacy and um ed gein Dennis kept a normal image. He went to work every day. You know, he went to work, did his Monday to Friday. And occasionally he would take a day off. But those days off would be because he had to dismember the body. But nobody knew that. He would just say he needed a day off. He needed a personal day. And you know what? Nobody could have argued with that because everybody deserves a mental health day. So when Dennis is with these bodies, he had a different persona. And it would came and it only came around when it when it came to these crimes. And although he couldn't control the persona mentally, physically, he had control over how to manage these victims and how he had a lot more confidence because this persona of this criminal was everything he's ever wanted. Somebody with who was independent, who was confident who you know could get all the guys or whatever and had all this social skill because that's not who he was in real life like you know that quote fake it till you make it well he didn't make it okay 
He just faked it his whole life. <laughs> February 8th. 1983, 37-year-old Dennis had moved to a place where he stayed on the top floor. Um, this building was located on Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill, north of London. And later on, res- residents actually started to complain about the drains being blocked, and a plumber came to check it out. The plumber discovered that what could be bits of flesh in the drains and, and was just shocked. Dennis suggested that someone might have flushed down their KFC meal. Okay, first of all, that's already fucked up if you find flesh in your drains. Second of all, who the fuck flushes down food? Hello? And a whole KFC meal? Uh Uh-uh. Is that not what the garbage is for? Why are you flushing things down the toilet? Everywhere you go, every public place, there's a sign. Do not flush objects down the toilet unless it is paper like toilet paper do not flush it down the toilet that is why there's garbages and because he went to these bars he must have known but here he is suggesting it's a kfc meal i don't know why that would be the first thing that comes to your mind in the first place whatever The following morning, February 9th, 1983, the plumber returns and calls the police. The detective chief on the case was Peter J. and his team member, and they remember the day quite clearly, okay? Upon further inspections that day, the plumber and police pulled out four pieces of flesh, about three to four inches long, with three little bones that look like knuckles from a human hand. So Peter J., the detective, takes the remains to Charing Cross Hospital where resident pathologist Professor David Bowen confirmed it was part of a human. But instead of the suspicion of it being a hand, the piece examined was actually part of the human neck. He was also able to tell that the victim was strangled. See, that is dedicated work. Of course, because he's a pathologist, he studied it. But at the same time, it's like, from one look, how do you know this person's strangled? How do you know, you know, like, all of this? But I guess if you study it and you notice the signs. After getting their answer, Peter and his co-worker drove back to the residence and waited for Dennis to come home from work. Once Peter saw Dennis, he asked to see his flat on the top floor. Dennis starts to question the police like, so when was the police interested in looking at my flat? And Peter goes, I need to check your toilet. Because the plumber was saying how there was like a drainage, like blockage, like the drains were blocked and like people were suspecting like weird things in the drains. And Dennis goes, I still don't understand why the police is involved in this because why are policemen so interested in looking at my toilet specifically? So then Peter tells him, listen, buddy, I know about the human flesh, okay? So now Peter's like, okay, you better open your flat, like open the door, right? Like this is like. Um, like, this is an order. You have to open the door 
I'm, you know, I have a warrant check and stuff, whatever, right? So Peter opens his door and Pete, or Dennis opens the door and Peter said the minute Dennis opened the door, the smell of the decomp, uh, decomposing, decomposing flesh was very strong. Like you could tell from the minute he opened the door that there was dead body in there. Peter asked about the human flesh in the drains and where the rest of it was. And again, Dennis played dumb. He was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, You should ask the other residents. But eventually he ends up telling Peter, okay, fine. The rest of the body is in a plastic bag at the front closet. Okay, so clearly Dennis doesn't give a shit. He was like, um... I'm going to play dumb. Uh, I'm going to ask you these questions. I'm going to interrogate your ass because you're coming after me and I just came out off of work, right? Meanwhile, the police is like, I already know it's you. Like, don't be stupid. Just do what you're told. Peter arrests Dennis and takes him to the car. Peter's co-worker then asks him, what are we talking about? Like one or two bodies? Dennis replies, Neither. I think there's about 15. You think? You did these crimes and you think? Oh, Dennis, come on. Throughout all of this, Dennis was very calm, very collected, and he knew that one day he would get caught. He prepared himself for the day he would get caught. He was at peace with it. He's like, it's okay, I'm caught. I knew this was going to happen, whatever. Okay, first off, if you knew you were going to get caught, why the fuck did you commit this crime in the first place? If you knew you would get gone caught, if you knew this was going to happen, and all of that, why would you do it in the first place? Why are you wasting your time? You just want to throw your life away like that? People are whack. So Dennis made peace with knowing that he'd be caught for murder. And Dennis describes the day of his arrest as the day help arrived. And Dennis was taken into custody. Later, author Brian Masters was given permission to go into the home and look around. Brian also reached out to Dennis to talk about the crimes and to write a book about it. And investigators there taking fingerprints from one of the victim's hands showed that it belonged to a 20-year-old man named Stephen Sinclair, who had been missing since January 26, 1983. I just want to know, what is the fascination with serial killers and keeping that, the body in the house? Like, John Wayne Gacy did that. Jeffrey Dahmer did that. Like, I don't understand. Like, why? February 11th, 1983, at the age of 37, Dennis Nelson was charged with murder. Dennis immediately started to confess to all of his crimes, like one by one. The investigators did one interview per victim, each lasting about two hours. This was so that no information was mixed up and that they were able to get every detail um, that they could, uh, that Dennis could remember, because they were basing it off of his memory, which was very difficult for this because they have no proof. So it was just everything that he was saying. And... Police actually cannot um, 
arrest him for all of these murders unless they were 100% sure that this was the right person missing and that this was the right person he was talking about. Because during the investigation and the interviews, Dennis actually gave the victims nicknames. Like, he wouldn't, like, say their names. He remembered them, like, one of them was the omelet man because he remembers he made an omelet for that guy before he killed him so he would be like oh so on this date i met omelet man you know like he wouldn't give the police an actual name so dennis starts talking about his first victim stefan and how he kept his body under the floorboards for eight months at his first residence on Melrose Avenue. He tells investigators how he cuts the body into pieces, makes a bonfire in the garden, and burns the body. Dennis would also put rubber tires on top of the body so so that as they burn, the rubber tires would mask out the scent of the flesh. Okay, you sick fuck. Also, where do you find rubber tires? Like, enough rubber tires to do this. I don't know. After the bodies were done burning, he would go and look for more company. He then talks about how he found a Canadian tourist named Kenneth Ockenden, who was 23, and Dennis murdered him on December 3rd, 1979. Six months later, in May 1990, he killed 16-year-old Martin Duffy, who was a homeless runaway. Again, he kept both bodies under the floorboards for as long as he could. He killed five other men in 1980, and only one of them were identified as 27-year-old Billy Sutherlands. Dennis then admits to four more killings in 1981. The last one was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow in September. So again, the names that I have given are the ones that they were able to identify, so, the ones that I don't name are the ones that they couldn't identify or that, you know, Dennis was just not being straight up with them and just giving these police, like, whatever nickname he gave for these poor victims. 27-year-old Graham Allen went missing September 1982. His son, Shane Levine, remembered the day his dad didn't come home. Part of his body was the- recovered from the drains. That's so sad. And he was only 27. When Dennis moved in 1981 into the flat upstairs, he didn't have access to a bonfire or space in the floorboards. So for him to continue what he was doing, he would cut up the bodies and boil them before flushing them down the toilet. Okay, but what I want to know is how is the neighbors downstairs or whatever not complaining about the smell because if the police said the minute he opened the door you can smell it i don't even want to know what it smells like when he was boiling them Ugh. in the end dennis ends up confessing to 15 killings 12 in his first home on melrose and three more at the flat he tells the police if you haven't caught me now the numbers would not be at 15 i would have been at 150 And unfortunately, the police actually agreed with the statement. And they were like, you're probably right. If we didn't catch you and if the plumber didn't come, you could have been at 150. 
When Dennis was about to go on trial, his defense team tried pulling the insanity card, but through psychological testing by multiple doctors, they concluded that there was absolutely nothing wrong with Dennis. Okay, what I want to know is why does everybody want to pull that card? Like, I don't care what kind of case it is that I hear about or I'm talking about. Like, I've every single thing, one I've researched, every single one that's I've seen on the news lately, it's always, oh, the person plead um, insanity or, oh, they were diagnosed with this and this and this and this. But it's like, really? Even if you were, would you not have known what you were doing at the time? It just doesn't make any sense to me. February 15th, 1983, police find a small piece of jaw and some teeth attached to it in the rear garden at Melrose Avenue. They also found a thigh bone about six inches long. What the fuck? Okay. Dennis, what the fuck? And how did he, how was he able to sell his place to move to a different place? Like, do these people, like, not, when they're selling a house, like, do you not realize it's kind of odd, like, the smell and, like, whatever? I don't know. To me, it would just be weird. May 26, 1983, in a comital, comital, I don't know if I'm saying that right, comital hearing, Dennis's trial was set to start in October. His defense team was still fighting to plead insanity. The police received three calls after, um, coming from three witnesses to these crimes, Douglas Stewart, Paul Nobbs, and Carl Stodder, Stodder. All crimes came forward claiming, like, all three of them came forward claiming that they've been attacked by Dennis, which obviously is more evidence to the crime. There there could be more people, but they just never reported that. And so, bringing evidence from both residents, from Melrose and Cranley, um, at the loft or the flat... Police were able to charge Dennis for six murders. The trial began on October 24th, 1983 at the Old Bailey Courthouse. Even after all the confessions, his team still pleaded not guilty. Okay, his team's stupid. If he, if he admitted himself, why are you still trying to play not guilty? I don't know. Dennis did admit that he knew what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. He just didn't understand why it was such a big deal to everybody. Well, hello, you're taking people's lives. Hello, you're murdering people and hiding them under your floorboards and flushing them down the toilet. Hello? Like, does that not ring a bell? Like, okay, this is not okay. Like, um, this is not what normal people do. Normal people don't kill. They don't want to throw their whole life away. I, I don't understand. Like, what do you mean why it's, it's such a big deal? Of course it's a big deal. November 4th, 1983, Sir David Croom Johnson sentenced Dennis Nelson life imprisonment to serve 25 years before being considered for parole. But in 1994, they made the decision to change his sentence to a whole life tariff, which meant that he had no possibility of parole. Dennis Nelson will be spending the rest of his life in prison. Dennis Nelson later died on May 12, 2018. And that is the case of Dennis Nelson. And also, 
Um, there is a documentary about him, and it's called Des D E S. Um, I think is on Amazon Prime with a special subscription to something, and yeah. If not, you can always research the case yourself. But I hope you enjoyed this one. I know it's a very short one. Um, but I just wanted to tell you guys about a crime that happened in London instead of always in the U.S. I've been focusing a lot of that lately. And before I take off, I just want to say thank you again for all the support. And remember, if you want early access to my um, Crime Hour episodes, uh, just check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thecrimehour. That's www.patreon.com slash thecrimehour. Until next time, bye!